Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Haley Dushinsky, Director and Graduate Director of the Center for Law, Justice, and Culture at Ohio University. She recently returned from the European Parliament Subcommittee hearing on Kashmir and the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. She also conducted a human rights visit to Northern Ireland. Dr. Dushinsky's research interests have focused on human rights and Kashmir, an area of the world and people that are at the center of the current crisis in South Asia between India and Pakistan. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to somebody about the recent confrontation between India and Pakistan over Kashmir and that area. That prompted me to want to know more about that area and the complexities. Can you give us just a thumbnail history of that region? As far as – and what I'm asking is, you know, was it part of the division between Pakistan and India in the late 1940s and just sort of how it's evolved? Sure. Um, Kashmir itself has been a contested territory in South Asia dating back to even decades prior to the period of decolonization and war in the late 1940s. When India and Pakistan gained independence uh, from British colonial rule in 1947, at that time there was um, uncertainty about the future of the princely state of Kashmir that was located um, high in the Himalayan mountains between India and Pakistan. So there was a lack of clarity about the political future of Kashmir at that time. The two countries went to war. The war lasted until 1949 when a ceasefire was negotiated through the United Nations. Since that time, uh, Kashmir, the original princely state of Kashmir, has been divided and has been controlled partially by India, partially by Pakistan, a smaller area is administered or claimed by China. So that contestation uh, between India and Pakistan over Kashmir has lasted through now a total of three wars, continues to this day. Um, the important point to note, though, is that also there has been a very strong indigenous movement 
for self-determination for Kashmir that predates decolonization and that continues to be very strong to this day. That indigenous movement for self-determination is often overlooked in policy analyses that identify the Kashmir conflict as simply a struggle between two rival nuclear neighbors between India and Pakistan. So my research really foregrounds the indigenous struggle of the Kashmiri people for self-determination in the region. When I was preparing for my discussion with uh, our person on the conflict between India and Pakistan, I, I noticed the um, movement for independence. Um, but it was almost in the, the text that I was reading, almost a subnote. Uh, it, it wasn't prominent. Uh, why is that? Well, I think that India and Pakistan both have, um, are both very um, strong states. Um, in India, you certainly see that the state narrative is viewed as the authoritative narrative, and that is the narrative that is often reproduced in the media and also in the scholarship. Um, it's really only been fairly recently that international scholars have been really prioritizing Kashmiri perspectives, Kashmiri voices, Kashmiri interest in relation to this part of the world. Um, it's only recently that there has been a decentering um, away from state-centric narratives of the conflict in Kashmir and over Kashmir, and only recently that there's been a shift towards thinking about what Kashmir and what South Asia more generally looks like from the vantage point of Kashmir, centering those Kashmiri perspectives in the work. And a lot of that work that's now emerging in the scholarship is coming from Kashmiri anthropologists, Kashmiri historians, Kashmiri social scientists themselves who are doing empirical research and also finding that as a kind of opportunity to um, tell, their, tell their own stories based on their own experiences. Help us understand a little bit uh, more about the indigenous Kashmirian people. Are, are they homogenous or, or are they divided among different groups, different religions, different sects? Right. So the original, as I said, the original princely state of Kashmir is now divided between parts that are controlled by India and Pakistan. Within, um, within the region administered on, on each side, there's different Kashmiri communities um, and different communities that are living in the part of the princely state of, of Kashmir, speaking different languages and practicing different religious beliefs. Um, I carry out my research primarily in Indian-controlled Kashmir. Um, the portion of Kashmir that's administered or controlled by India on that side of the line of control is um, today known as the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So it is a state among many in India, in the Indian Federation. And it has three distinct regions, a region of Jammu, a region of Kashmir Valley, and a region of Ladakh. Um, the people who live in each of those regions speak different languages, practice predominantly different religions. There are some con cultural continuities and historical continuities that connect them. Um, but in many ways, they have their own perspectives and their own kind of collective experiences. Have they been assimilated into Indian culture, or, or do they maintain that degree of independence? Well, that plays out differently for people in different regions of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. When we talk about the Kashmiri movement for independence, the Kashmiri resistance movement today, um, that movement is primarily localized in Kashmir Valley. Kashmir Valley is a uh, predominantly um, Muslim Kashmiri population, Kashmiri-speaking population. Um, since the late 1940s, 
um, throughout the period of modern Indian history. There have been many kind of state-led efforts to um, promote, to coerce assimilation of Kashmiris from that region into Indian culture. Kashmiris have largely resisted those movements. Um, That's part of what's at stake in the struggle for independence today. This is going to sound like a naive question, so I apologize ahead of time. But you've got two nuclear powers. You have India. You have Pakistan. They're neighbors. They've been uh, contentious from the get-go. What makes the people of this Kashmirian region think that they have a chance against these two major powers of – uh, having any kind of independence? Well, that's a really important question. I think that the um, the Kashmiri uh, um, claim for self-determination, um, the claim to the right to self-determination, the, the legal foundations of that really date back to this period just after um, the independence of India and Pakistan, after the end of the British colonial period. At that time when the war between India and Pakistan was going on, the United Nations stepped in to negotiate a ceasefire to bring that war to an end and to establish a ceasefire line based on the um, locations of the armed forces of each side at, the, at that period of the cessation of the war. That ceasefire line is still with some slight modifications in place today. It's often treated as an international boundary called the line of control. Um, but at that time, beginning in the late 1940s and really lasting then throughout the 1950s, the UN Security Council passed a series of re- resolutions that sought to um, um, enshrine the Kashmiri right to self-determination within the framework of the call for a plebiscite to give Kashmiris the opportunity to determine their own political future. Remember, this was a time when in South Asia, India and Pakistan were gaining independence from British colonial rule. There was a time when liberation movements were very strong in South Asia and in many other parts of the world. So what we see, unfortunately, happening in that time is... um, In the case of India, India established as a post-colonial nation, which continues to maintain this kind of colonial relationship to Kashmir. So it's really kind of the same principles, right, that that underlie the Indian claim to independence that Kashmiris are calling for now. And it's grounded in those Security Council resolutions. Because this area seems to be um, the battleground whenever uh, India and Pakistan go at each other. Uh, it's through or about or in Kashmir. Um, is that just a matter of geography or why is that particular region the point of contest between India and Pakistan? I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, the the political status of Kashmir was very important at the time of partition and independence. It was important to both India and to Pakistan at that time. Um the, my, my, my sense is that for India, it was very important for them to be able to claim Kashmir as a Muslim-majority state because it was the only Muslim-majority state in India. And India at that time was very invested in establishing um, its, um, its dominant form of statehood as nationalism based on the principle of secularism, right? Mm-hmm. The Muslims would have a, a place in the emerging, in the emerging Indian nation. So it was important for them to be able to kind of showcase Kashmir as an example, right, that kind of proves that premise. Um, at the same time, as a Muslim-majority state, um, uh, 
it also made sense from Pakistan's perspective for the state to join with Pakistan, which was established on the principle of religious nationalism. So those kinds of competing nationalisms, I think, that were taking place at the time of independence set the stage for the contestation over Kashmir. Um, at the same time now, throughout the period of um, different political parties that have been at the helm in India, for many, many decades, you saw the dominance of the Congress Party, which is kind of an uh, Indian liberal political party. For them, the maintaining Jammu and Kashmir's status in India was very important for these reasons. In the last few decades, you've seen the rise of right-wing Hindu nationalism, um, and part of this Hindu nationalist movement is laying very strong and powerful claims to Kashmir um, and to really identifying Kashmir as a kind of point of contention between India and Pakistan. So, for example, um, we're coming up now. Next month, we'll be seeing um, a round of major Indian elections. I was going to say yeah. there are elections coming up There's soon. elections so coming how up. how does that come into play now? Absolutely. Whenever elections are on the horizon, you see that the rhetoric really becomes kind of ramped up around Kashmir, right? It becomes increasingly virulent, increasingly politicized, incre um, increasingly kind of militaristic. Um, that's one way of kind of um, mobilizing support for, for the political party in power. This last uh, contest, and I don't know how else to, to put it, military uh, action between India and Pakistan, I understand was different than those in the past and that this involved air power. It involved greater incursions into each other's uh, territory, the capture of the Indian pilot, the return of the Indian pilot. Uh, this sort of amping up of the military contest, what does that do for the people that you're studying in Kashmir? They, do they think, you know, what chance do we have? Look at these two powers are, are, are going over the top of us and using us uh, to, to fight and we're just stuck here in the middle. Right. Well, I think that it's important to remember what was it that actually sparked the escalation of tensions between India and Pakistan in the first place. It um, was the suicide bombing, right? Of yes. Over 40-some uh, individuals. Yes, exactly. So it was um, uh, um, a young Kashmiri who carried out um, a suicide attack on a it's CRPF, the Central Reserve Police Force, um, armed military personnel stationed in Kashmir carried out a suicide attack on a bus and killed, I think, 42, 42 people. Um, that Kashmiri was apparently identified with um, what's called a militant organization um, that is fighting for independence in Kashmir and that, according to India, has ties to Pakistan, um, receives support, perhaps training, perhaps ammunition from Pakistan, is given some safe havens in Pakistan. So it was that suicide attack that really ramped up the tensions in this case. Um, in the days and weeks immediately following the February 14th attack, um, as the rest of the world was watching the escalations of tensions between India and Pakistan, Kashmiris were obviously concerned about that, but they were also primarily concerned about the increasing militarizations and crackdowns taking place in Kashmir. So in the aftermath of this attack, as you would see in other kinds of um, episodes of militant action in Kashmir. Um, there were, of course, immediate crackdowns on communication, on um, mobile phone communication, text messaging, internet access, freedom of assembly, freedom of expression. Um, 
and an increase in um, crackdowns on the general population. So those are always causes for concerns, of course, among Kashmiris. And of course, Pakistan being uh, a primarily Muslim country uh, known historically for harboring various forms of terrorist groups, I'm sure, that sparked India uh, thinking that, well, this guy's Muslim from Kashmir. He's got to be supported by the Pakistani government, right? Yeah, I mean, yes. simplified version, but... Yes, of course, that's true. And, and it's also the case that for Kashmiris who are living outside of Kashmir yeah. and other parts of India, um, there, there were also a lot of... Um, kind of reprisals against Kashmiris living in Delhi and in Bombay, students who have gone to university and who have left Kashmir and gone to India to, to attend school either for undergraduate or graduate studies. There were a lot of very frightening um, reprisals against um, Kashmiris as well living outside of the region. So that was a concern for people too. Now, y you just came back from a, a conference uh, involving Kashmir. T talk about that a bit. Well, I'll talk a little bit about some of the movement that's been happening in the yes, international arena, please. sure, over the past year. So this is a really important historical um, juncture um, in the international conflict in Kashmir that we're kind of in the middle of right now. In June of 2018, um, almost a year ago, the office, the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights published uh, the first ever report on the human rights situation in Kashmir. This was important because although the UN has been um, involved in the Kashmir dispute since its origin, right, right. Um, immediately after independence. This report was important because it focused on the human rights situation on both sides of the line of control in Kashmir, focusing on both India and Pakistan. Um, this report, um, importantly, focused on human rights violations that have been taking place since 2016. Um, and it's true that this post-2016 period has been a period of very, very worrisome escalation of human rights abuses um, on both sides and especially on the Indian side of the line of control. The Human Rights Report focused on that but didn't only focus on the human rights situation, also contextualized those human rights violations within this larger kind of question of the right to self-determination. So the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights Report um, among its recommendations, called for uh, demilitarization of the region, called for a ceasefire, the maintenance of a ceasefire, called for the repeal of various laws in India and in Pakistan that lead to um, the um, oppression of Kashmiri communities and that provide different kinds of impunity for armed forces that have carried out human rights violations. It also called for the establishment of a commission of inquiry at the UN level to really examine um, human rights violations and to also examine the question of the right to self-determination in Kashmir. So this is important. Um, that report came out in June of 2018. So we are hoping that the UN Human Rights Council, um, perhaps in its upcoming session in June of 2019, will take seriously this call for um, a resolution to establish a UN Commission of Inquiry. I think that form of international intervention would um, play a really in, in important role. In a, important role how? Would it, just by focusing a spotlight or by involving other international powers uh, at looking at the situation, how would it help? Right. 
So for for many decades, I mean, it, it, it's, it's since 1990, prior to 1990 as well, especially since 1990, in the Indian-controlled part of Kashmir, um, starting in 1990, um, there was a very popular uh, Kashmiri movement, an armed resistance movement, right? Kashmiris took up arms okay. against the state as part of their fight for independence. And the Indian government responded by introducing a series of these um, national security laws, um, laws that grant um, high degrees of impunity to armed forces for carrying out counterinsurgency measures in Kashmir. So throughout the 1990s, we see this period of dirty war, right, insurgency and counterinsurgency warfare going on. The armed resistance movement subsided in the early 2000s, um, but these um, uh, the national security laws stayed in place, and these different mechanisms and techniques of repression also stayed in place. So what we see now is really almost three decades of really rampant human rights violations, and there have been virtually no effective forms of remedy at the state level or at the national level in India to Kashmiris who have experienced violations, including enforced disappearance, custodial killings, torture, sexual violence, use as human shields, enforced labor, destruction of property. There's, there's, there's many of them. So this lack of effective remedy um, obviously is very problematic. Um, there's different kinds of uh, remedies that should be available um, to, to Indian citizens through the Indian legal system um, to address these kinds of issues, but those remedies have failed time and time again. And so Kashmiris who have experienced these violations have been continuously seeking remedy, right? They've been going to the High Court of Kashmir, right? taking these claims forward, trying to pursue legal avenues for redress. Um, to date, there has not been one case where an armed forces personnel um, has been fairly investigated and prosecuted for carrying out any of these human rights violations. So it's basic impunity. It's complete impunity, right? There have been no civilian trials. There have been some military trials, and there have been a few cases of police personnel who have been investigated and in a few cases prosecuted, but those are few and far between. So there have also been different attempts to set up state-level commissions of inquiry, and those have time and time again either not really drawn to an adequate conclusion, not being not been carried out in a fair and fair and impartial manner, or have um, never really been resolved. So the legal remedies have failed, the commissions of inquiry have failed at the state level, at the Indian level. So um Kashmiris are kind of turning their attention to the United Nations, right? And the United Nations would come in and bring in people to help enforce their resolutions or – I think that that's the idea, okay. right? So, um, so um, the UN uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights right. uh, last year – now the High Commissioner has changed in the past year. But the High Commissioner who really spearheaded this project leading to the report – identified the widespread human rights violations that were really um, coming to international attention in a new way in 2016, identified this as a problem, took cognizance of the problem, and started asking both India and Pakistan for permission to allow UN monitors into the region to carry out um, a monitoring sure. mission um, and to use that as the basis for the report. And both India and Pakistan refused to uh, um, grant that unconditional access. In the absence of that access, the Office of the High Commissioner had to pursue a strategy called remote monitoring, which is… Which 
is never as good as well, it's interesting. <laughs> monitoring right yes. on the scene, right? It's a bit of a novel innovation, I think, for in these kinds of UN channels to it think about how to carry like out monitoring. It almost sounds like a euphemism, <laughs> yeah, remote monitoring. It does. I, I think in this case, it was an interesting dynamic, actually, what happened, because it meant that the, that the Office of the High Commissioner needed to um, – rely on material that's publicly available. I mean, the court documents themselves, the document decades and decades of violations that have never led to investigations or prosecutions, but still the court files are there, the testimonies are there, right? So they were examining um, the state files themselves, the legal files, and also the, the, the really substantial amount of human rights documentation that's been produced by human rights workers operating on the ground by Kashmiris themselves who over the past few decades have really done a remarkable job working under such adverse circumstances of producing very, very rigorous, very systematic documentation um, based on legal field research, right? So in a way, that documentation is kind of more rigorous and sustained than something that UN monitors might have been able to do in a one or two week period. It's a different dynamic. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You've studied this area. It's a point of scholarship for you. You've edited books and 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 written about the, this region. Do you approach this region as a scholar, as an advocate, or both? Or how do you separate that? Or do you? Um, I'm a I'm a, a social scientist. I'm a legal and political anthropologist, and my scholarship focuses on Kashmir. So Kashmir is my f- my primary field research site, and my primary field research topic. Um, Up until the past decade, the scholarly literature on Kashmir um, was virtually dominated by kind of large-scale geopolitical analyses that focused on the dispute and the region itself, mainly through the lens of India and Pakistan, the politics of India and Pakistan. not through the lens of the indigenous Kashmiris. Not through the lens of the indigenous Kashmiri people and their struggles for liberation. And it's really only been in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years now, that a new approach to Kashmir study scholarship has started to emerge. 
critical Kashmir studies scholarship. It takes a very, very different approach. And this is an exciting generative moment in Kashmir studies scholarship for this region. The scholarship that's emerging now is, um, is really based on empirical research, whether it's archival research, ethnographic research, cultural studies research that's taking place on the ground in Kashmir through engagement with Kashmiri communities, differently positioned Kashmiri communities. And I mean, as critical Kashmir studies scholars, we don't shy away from the complicated politics of this situation. We think it would be unethical and irresponsible to try to avoid these political questions. Um, We do carry out our research in alignment with the commitment um, that Kashmiris should be able to determine their own political futures um, and should have the right to to self-determination. Um, but it's important for us to approach critical Kashmir studies scholarship, not just from the point of view of the kind of dominant historical narratives, the status narratives, the hegemonic narratives promoted by India and Pakistan, but instead to think against the grain of that and to try to imagine what South Asia looks like from the vantage point of Kashmir rather than from the vantage point of, of, of Delhi or Islamabad. Now, does the UN or other international groups and agencies use that kind of scholarship in their analysis of the region? Well, my sense is that the UN bodies are primarily interested in more legalistic discourse, human rights documentation, right? Legal studies and legal cases, as opposed to social science analysis. Um, Although um, I think that the different bodies, different communities, different networks all contribute in in different ways to kind of shining light on um, the dynamics of resistance and occupation in Kashmir. And so it's those those um, engagements are interesting ones, right? So you're planning to go back this summer, as I understand it, um, after the, the disturbance or, or the confrontation in February and and uh, early March. Uh, has that changed what you're going to be looking for? Um, So this summer, I'll be returning in June to the Human Rights Council sessions in Geneva, um, where um, I'm anticipating that there will be further discussion and debate about the human rights situation in Kashmir. Um, It's possible that the Human Rights Council will consider the possibility of a resolution on a commission of inquiry in Kashmir. And if that doesn't happen, at the very least, there will continue to be some discussion and debate about it among the member states, the civil society groups, and the Office of the High Commissioner. So for me as a researcher, what's the interesting shift that's happened over the last year with the introduction of the Human Rights Report, Mm -hmm. for me as a researcher, it's provided me with an opportunity to kind of shift my um, analytic gaze. Um, I've become interested in how Kashmir and possibilities of international intervention um, are negotiated in these international spaces how Kashmir is talked about, how Kashmir is contested, what kind of politics frame those contestations in the spaces of international justice, whether that be the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, the European Parliament, other kinds of sites. On your last trip, uh, you spent some time in Northern Ireland. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, for the last uh, seven or eight years, as a faculty member here at Ohio University, I've developed and directed um, just a short-term study abroad program 
on uh, human rights law and justice in Northern Ireland. So every year I've taken about 20 to 25 students to Northern Ireland over spring break for a really a very intense nine-day period focusing on the different legal remedies that have been, um, that have been uh, put into place as part of the effort to deal with the past in post-conflict, post-troubles Northern Ireland. Um, so yes, you're right. This year we just returned from our nine-day trip um, in late February to Northern Ireland. Um, during our time there, we, we meet with an array of different legal actors, human rights actors. We meet with former IRA soldiers, former political prisoners, human rights lawyers who are fighting cases before the European Court of Human Rights. We meet with victims associations, including the Bloody Sunday families, the families um, um, of the OMA bombing victims. We also visit various memorial museums and talk to the museum curators and try to try to understand how those memories are created and contested in this post-conflict setting. You're you're a scholar looking at human rights and, and human conflict. How do students react? Do they react differently than you? Well, that's an interesting question. I. I think that actually the experience, I can talk about Northern Ireland where I've traveled with students. My, my impression is that many students find themselves somewhat transformed through the process of um, studying legacies of, of war and violence and also the real struggles for redress to establish accountability so many decades even in that case after a war has ended, the struggles that remain, right? These are, there's no easy political fixes, and, and the, the contestation that continues in Northern Ireland is a, is a case in point. So during the time that the students and I were there on this trip, during one of the final days of our program, um, we were in the town of Derry, which is a, a central city for the establishment of the Good Friday Agreement, the peace process in 1998. Right. Um, Derry is also the site where the Bloody Sunday Massacre took place in 1972, where 14 civilian protesters, civil rights protesters, were shot by a parachute regimen of the armed forces of the British government. Um, you know, in the in, in the months following Bloody Sunday in 1972, um, the British state um, claimed that the innocent um, civilian protesters who had been killed were actually terrorists who had been armed with nail bombs and with guns, who had been themselves shooting at the armed forces. Of course, the people of Derry denied this. They knew it wasn't true. Um, a state inquiry that was put into place just a few months later, largely seen as a whitewash now, established that the armed forces um, had been in the right to shoot those civilian protesters and that the protesters were indeed most likely terrorists in that case. So this kind of, miscar this kind of miscarriage of justice, right, this kind of injustice through um, the legal system in the aftermath of state violence um, of course, very much alienated the families of Derry and people throughout Northern Ireland. Decades later, another Truth Commission was established, the Savile Inquiry. It's the only time, to my knowledge, that the British government has instituted a second inquiry, Commission of Inquiry, to investigate something. In this case, it was seen as, um, as necessary in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement. The Savile Inquiry really uh, kind of overturned the conclusions of the Witchery Inquiry and found that the civilian protesters had been innocent, issued apologies, um, 
So the truth came out in that instance, and it's widely regarded as a very substantial, thoughtful, detailed report. In the wake of the Savile inquiry, then the question turned to the question of prosecutions. Now that the state had established the truth of what happened during Bloody Sunday, would there be prosecutions for the soldiers who had carried out this murder of unarmed civilian protesters? So for the last eight years, we've been waiting for this decision to come forward. The decision finally came through two weeks ago, and it was on a day when the students and I were in Derry. And so I think that um, for, many, for, for many of the students, there was this kind of hopefulness or maybe even an assumption that the justice system would prevail and that the, given the fact that the Savile Inquiry had established the truth, that many decades have passed, that it would be kind of a clear case, right, where prosecutions would go forward. Um, on that day, it, it, it was quite a disappointment um, when the, um, the decision of the uh, Office of the uh, Public Prosecutor came out that only one soldier would be charged and only for two counts of murder as opposed to the four that are attributed to him. The families were disappointed. Um, people throughout the city were disappointed. Many people in Northern Ireland were disappointed. Um, and so I think that that's a, it's kind of eye-opening, I think. Um, for, for students to experience something like that firsthand and to see it from the vantage point of the families who have been affected. Haley, thank you so much for talking with us. Good luck with your scholarship coming up, and I hope that we can come back and talk to you again uh, as this problem evolves. Okay, thank you so much, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Haley Dushinsky, Director and Graduate Director of the Center for Law, Justice, and Culture at Ohio University. We talked about the critical region of Kashmir in South Asia. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>